Chapter Twenty Two of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter Twenty Two The One Act Play in America. Part One The development of the drama is conditioned more than that of any other art by the economic principle of supply and demand no considerable number of playwrights will devote their energies in any period to writing a type of play that is seldom or never called for in the theatre of that period at the present time for instance it would be a waste of labor for an author to construct a play in two parts of five acts each to be played upon successive evenings because according to our present social custom it would be impossible to persuade any audience to attend the same play two nights running yet this form was frequently employed in the elizabethan period as in the case of marlowe's tabulane the great and again in the restoration period as in the case of dryden's conquest of granada and even so recently as eighteen seventy three it was used by henrik ebsen for his world historic drama entitled emperor and galilean what these playwrights were allowed to do in other ages by the custom of the theatre our own authors are forbidden to attempt to-day but the main point to be observed is that the custom of the theatre is a variable thing and that just as certain forms may be allowed to lapse from usage in any period so also is it possible to call other forms into active exercise by the incentive of a general demand the structure of the drama is determined mainly by the social habits of the theatre-going public such apparently minor matters as an alteration of the dinner hour for example may necessitate a revolution in the dramaturgic methods of a nation in its original form hamlet was written to be played at three p m and to continue until evening but the piece is now too long to be exhibited in its entirety before an audience that dines late and prefers to go to the theatre after dinner if shakespeare were writing this tragedy to-day he would feel impelled to tell his story in two hours and he would probably feel forced to alter the superb opening of the drama in order to discount the inevitable interruption imposed upon contemporary playwrights by the discourtesy of tardy dinners thus far the theatre system in america has discouraged the composition of the one-act play and the managers who regulate our theatres have steadfastly refused to be persuaded that this interesting type of drama would be welcomed by any considerable proportion of the theatre-going public but the managers are by no means always right in their estimates of what the public does not want a fact that is indicated not infrequently when some adventurer among them achieves an emphatic success by a daring departure from established customs the one-act play is so worthy in itself as a medium of artistic expression and the cultivation of this form would be so helpful to the cause of our dramatic art in general that it is desirable that we should examine carefully the present attitude of the public and the managers with a view of asking whether or not it would be possible without running counter to the present social customs of our public to encourage the development of this special type of drama there are generally speaking 
only three ways in which the one-act play can be afforded a professional production. First, it may be exhibited in vaudeville, as part of a continuous performance whose other features, like acrobats, trained dogs, and song-and-dance artists who can neither sing nor dance, reveal no relation whatsoever to the art of the drama. Second, it may be presented in a legitimate theater as an adjunct to a longer play, either as a curtain-raiser or as an afterpiece. Or third, it is possible to make up a special evening's bill by presenting three or four one-act plays together. Let us examine, in turn, the conditions which surround each of these opportunities in America today. The demand for one-act plays in our thousands of vaudeville theaters is nothing short of enormous. And yet this demand, as at present regulated, is not of a sort to encourage sincere artists to write for these theaters. The reason is that, whether rightly or wrongly, our vaudeville managers seem to have made up their minds that their audiences have no brains. They have apparently decided that only two types of dramatic sketches can successfully be presented to fifty-cent audiences. First, comic skits whose humor is purposefully crude and is achieved mainly by means of horseplay. And, second, mechanical melodramas whose action is so full of sound and fury that they bear no reference to life. It would be difficult to persuade an earnest dramatist to waste his energy in writing either of these types, and, judging from most of the sketches that are presented in these theaters, the managers do not even attempt to enlist the services of authors who can think and write. No experience could be more depressing to any intelligent person than to spend six successive evenings in six different vaudeville theaters in New York. The experiment, if attempted, would probably result in suicide on Sunday. But, as our hypothetical person of intelligence was kissing his assembled family a last farewell, he would wistfully be moved to wonder whether the vaudeville public really is so empty-headed as the vaudeville managers presume. Undoubtedly, they reason that, since the public fills their theaters, they must be giving the public what it wants. But does it follow, necessarily, that the same public would not also fill their theaters if they gave it something better. There are millions of people in this country who can afford only fifty cents for entertainment, but who, feeling that entertainment is an imperative necessity, must spend their fifty cents for whatever the vaudeville managers are willing to set before them. They suffer from a tragic need of laughter, and the fact that they laugh easily at a clown whose clothes are too big for him does not at all indicate that they would not also laugh eagerly at the whimsicalities of Sir James Berry. In many of our minor cities, the best theatre is a vaudeville theatre. It is patronized by the best people, and we must therefore accept as a logical inference the supposition that the audience is more intelligent than the show. But this inevitable supposition amounts to a reductio ad absurdum, for surely the only real satisfaction that can be derived by an intelligent person in the theatre is the pleasure of encountering an intelligence more able than his own. The few good one-act plays that have been produced in recent years in vaudeville, like Madame Butterfly or Barry's The Twelve-Pound Look, have been accepted with enthusiasm by the public of the cheaper theatres, and it would seem obvious to a logical mind 
that it would pay the vaudeville managers to supply their public with other plays of this high order of artistic merit but the hardest thing to teach any theatrical manager is the advisability from the standpoint of mere business of looking up to the public instead of down upon it and solely because of this fact our vaudeville theatres at the present moment in spite of their enormous need offer small encouragement to the composition of worthy one-act plays by earnest artists let us turn our attention therefore to the second possibility the possibility of presenting one-act plays in conjunction with longer pieces this possibility is habitually realized in london but with unsatisfactory results in london the normal dinner hour of the aristocracy is eight o'clock and it is therefore impossible to raise the curtain on the chief play of the evening until nine but since the pit and gallery are unreserved these sections of the house are filled before eight o'clock by people who have often stood in line for hours since it is necessary to entertain these humbler patrons until the hour when the aristocrats are ready to stroll into the stalls it is a custom in the london theatres to put on a one-act play as a prelude to the main piece of the evening but in their choice of these curtain raisers the london managers seem influenced by a depressive sense that only the less important part of the audience will see them for seldom are these one-act plays more meritorious than those which are presented in our cheaper theatres in america on the occasion of my last professional visit to london i must have seen over thirty curtain raisers but none of them was sufficiently impressive to linger in my memory here again we have an instance of an opportunity that has been thrown away because the managers have chosen to look down upon their poorer patrons the custom of using curtain raisers is not common in new york for the reason that the dinner hour is set sixty minutes earlier than in london and that the entire audience is willing that the curtain should be rung up at twenty minutes after eight provided of course that everybody be allowed the boorish privilege of coming late in practice a successful british play which in london was begun at nine o'clock is begun in new york at twenty minutes after eight and is padded out with unnecessary intervals between the acts by this process the american manager makes the piece apparently fill the evening and spares himself the expense of preceding it with a curtain raiser an habitual attendant at the new york theatres cannot avoid wondering at the meekness with which the public tolerates this padding a play that has been announced for eight twenty will actually begin at eight forty and after every act fifteen or often twenty minutes will be wasted in an entr'acte the manager is satisfied if he can contrive to defer the final curtain fall until a few minutes before eleven and he will subsequently state that there is no demand for one-act plays because the public is unwilling to come to the theatre before eight-twenty and insists on being let out at eleven he will tell you about the large proportion of the theatre-going public that has to catch suburban trains but he will not listen while you count up the time that has been deliberately thrown away between the acts here again it must be evident that an opportunity is being wasted and that the attitude of the managers cannot honestly be accepted as an indication of any real lack of interest on the part of the public in the production of one-act plays but 
let us turn now to the consideration of the third possibility, which is the most promising of all. In many of the best theatres of Europe, it is customary to present an evening's bill that is made up of three or four one-act plays, and there seems to be no logical reason why a similar experiment should not be successful in America. Recently, Mr. Charles Froman attempted, in London, to make an evening's entertainment out of three one-act plays by three of the most eminent of English dramatic authors, Sir Arthur Pinero, Sir James Barry, and Mr. Bernard Shaw and the venture failed merely because the Barry play was the only one of the trio which evoked the approval of the public. The example of the Grand Guignol in Paris has been, perhaps, too often cited. The policy of this little theatre is based upon the proposition that a shock to the nerves or to the conscience, which would be unendurable if protracted through three acts, may be safely effected in the sudden, brief compass of a single act. Most of the plays exploited at the Grand Guignol have, therefore, been sensational. The authors of these little dramas have combined to exhibit lurid glimpses of life in a chamber of horrors. But our loitering and huge and kindly life can really be considered no more as a chamber of horrors than as a veil of tears. The Grand Guignol has shut out from its range of vision the most enjoyable detail of human life, for it has shut out joy. In Germany, the one-act play is considered more seriously than in France. A typical instance is the evening's entertainment devised by Hermann Sudermann with the title Moratori. This bill consists of three distinct one-act plays which are related to each other only by the circumstance that, in each of them, the leading character is condemned to inevitable death within twenty-four hours, and is so situated that he cannot possibly confide his doom to any of the other characters. Such an entertainment as this is eagerly received by the public of the German nations. In the English-speaking countries, the only company which has committed itself to the policy of regularly presenting three short plays in a single evening is the company of Irish players of the Abbey Theatre, Dublin. It is a significant fact that this company has repeated its success at home in its several appearances at the Court Theatre in London and also in the theatres of Boston, Chicago, and New York. Instead of offering a repertory of two or three four-act plays, this company presents a repertory of no less than thirty-four brief compositions, in any of which its members are prepared to appear at an hour's notice. It is not difficult to estimate the opportunity that is afforded by this policy to the rising dramatists of Ireland. When I expressed surprise to Lady Gregory, the benign and motherly patron of the Irish players, that one of their most able authors, Mr. St. John G. Irvine, was only twenty-six or seven years of age, she answered with a smile, That isn't young for us. By this repertory system, the young author is encouraged to try his hand at one-act plays, and is enabled to achieve a reputation in his prentice years. Lady Gregory herself, perhaps in consequence of the demand affected by the policy of this very company, is one of the most accomplished artists in the one-act form now writing in the English language. Her brief dramatic anecdotes rarely attain the tensity that is expected in a full-length play, but they are deeply human in sagacity and broadly generous in humor. 
they remind us a little of the one-act plays of Moliere, and their unassailed success upon the American stage leads us to question if our managers have not been near-sighted in shying away from the production of such amiable compositions in the past. The only point that may be advanced against a compound theatre bill of this sort is the point that is commonly brought forth by publishers to explain their hesitance in bringing out a volume of short stories. It may be urged that it is difficult for an audience, in the brief space of two hours and a half, to shift its sympathy several times from one set of characters to another. This seems, indeed, to constitute a real objection to the compound bill especially when the successive plays are to be performed by the same company of actors it is difficult for the auditors to forget the first piece in time to deliver themselves completely to the second yet this theoretical objection has not made itself apparent in the practice of the irish players and where so much may be gained by the adoption of the european policy of the compound bill it would seem captious to insist upon what after all must merely be a minor point. Part 2 It would seem, from the foregoing considerations, that the present prejudice in America against encouraging the composition of the one-act play is lacking in logical foundation. But we must now consider the more important question whether the one-act play, if properly encouraged, would prove itself worthwhile. To this question, the only answer must be emphatically in the affirmative. From the merely practical standpoint, the development of the one-act play is desirable for two very different reasons. In the first place, a broad market for the one-act play would afford our rising authors a needed opportunity for the exercise of their preliminary efforts toward the broader craft of dramaturgy. At present, our magazine system affords our future novelists an opportunity to test their talents in the cognate art of the short story. The short story, to be sure, is distinct from the novel, not only in magnitude, but also in method. But a training in the one type is the best of all exercises to fit a young author to adventure on the other. To prove this point, one need only cite the instances of Hawthorne and Duday. But, at present, our incipient dramatists are afforded no opportunity to exercise their wings in swallow flights, and this fact militates strongly against the general effectiveness of our dramatic art. As much time is required to write a single four-act play as to write half a dozen one-act plays. In the case of a new author, his ambitious four-act play will probably be bad. But, if he could spend the same time in working out six little dramas in a single act, it is probable that one of them at least might be worthy of production. Those who have at last succeeded in a difficult art are likely to forget the terrible necessity of encouragement to those who are still striving. But one success in six brief efforts must mean more to an aspirant than the failure of a single more ambitious effort. Hence, in order to encourage the authors of a younger generation, it is tremendously desirable that we should put in common practice the policy of producing one-act plays. But, of course, it may be questioned whether or not it is the business of the manager to encourage the efforts of the rising generation. 
Looking at the matter merely from the financial standpoint, this question must be decided emphatically in the affirmative. It is true, at any time, in any art, that the old order changeth, yielding place to new. And, in the theatre, that manager is most sure of making money who can hitch his wagon to the rising star of an author of real promise. It would, therefore, be profitable to our managers to establish a training school for the talents of potential dramatists, and the most efficient training school would be a theatre devoted to the production of one-act plays. In the second place, a more general composition of one-act plays would offer our amateur actors a more easy opportunity to exercise their talents. The production of the average drama of ordinary length requires an expenditure beyond the means of amateurs, but the majority of one-act plays may be produced at very small expense. Of course, the question may be asked why the guardians of our dramatic destiny should trouble their minds at all to consider the demands of amateurs. But the answer is very simple. From the professional standpoint, the advantage of amateur acting is that it fits the amateur performers for a more comprehensive enjoyment of the achievements of the professional theatre. The surest way to teach a boy or girl to appreciate the artistry of the sonnets of Rossetti is to encourage the student to write sonnets of his own. His efforts will probably be bad but the mere exercise of his otherwise unrewarded attempts will prepare him the better to appreciate the achievement of the few great artists who have succeeded in the endeavor which has proved itself beyond his reach. To encourage amateur acting is to prepare an audience for the keen appreciation of the professional theater, and any policy that meets the needs of amateurs should therefore be encouraged. Part 3 but apart from these immediate considerations, it must be maintained that the one-act play is admirable in itself, as a medium of art. It shows the same relation to the full-length play as the short story shows to the novel. It makes a virtue of economy of means. It aims to produce a single dramatic effect with the greatest economy of means that is consistent with the utmost emphasis. The method of the one-act play, at its best, is similar to the method employed by Browning in his dramatic monologues. The author must suggest the entire history of a soul by seizing it at some crisis of its career and forcing the spectator to look upon it from an unexpected and suggestive point of view. A one-act play, in exhibiting the present, should imply the past and intimate the future. The author has no leisure for laborious exposition, but his mere projection of a single situation should sum up in itself the accumulated results of many antecedent causes. The piece should be inconclusive, and yet pregnant with conclusions. The playwright should open a momentary little vista upon life, and then, with a sort of wistful smile, should ring the curtain down. The one-act play, at its best, can no more serve as a single act of a longer drama than the short story can serve as a single chapter of a novel. The form is complete, concise, and self-sustaining, and it requires an extraordinary focus of imagination. In view of the technical difficulties of this artistic form, it might be questioned whether we are equipped with the necessary talent to achieve a literature of one-act plays even if our managers could be persuaded to offer due encouragement to the composition of this type of drama.
But to this question, once again, the only answer must be in the affirmative. It is undeniable that any of our established dramatists could write a one-act play if the policy of our theatre should encourage him to do so. And it is scarcely less deniable that acceptable one-act plays might be written under the stimulus of due encouragement by any of the large army of authors who now contribute meritorious short stories to our American magazines. There can be no question that we possess the talent. All that remains requisite is a theatrical policy that shall call our latent talent into active exercise. End of chapter 22